This is Mike Grell, and you're listening to Warlord Worlds. And thank you for listening to Warlord Worlds, a fan podcast devoted to the comic creations of writer and artist Mike Grell, including the Warlord, John Sable, and Green Arrow. I'm Ruth. And I'm Dara. And this is a fan podcast. We're not affiliated with Mike Grell, and the opinions expressed are just ours. We do this podcast simply because we always enjoy reading and talking about comics by Mike Grell. The number of issues covered in each episode varies based on story arcs. Today, we'll talk about John Sable, number 21, The Warlord, number 33 and 34, and Green Arrow, 25 through 26, which features a story set in Sherwood Forest. We'll also continue our coverage of The Legion of Superheroes by Mike Grell with issues 206 and 207. Our special guests joining us for that segment are Mike Lane of the Comics in the Golden Age podcast and Jeff Messer of the Geek Brain podcast. Also, coming up later in the episode, we have details about a new contest. I think it's something that will be fun for everyone, so be sure to listen for the details in our feedback section. If you enjoy the podcast, be sure to check out MikeGrail.com. That's his official site. He posts upcoming convention appearances there along with photos and news updates. And we recommend the Mike Grail page on Facebook. The site features lots of great news and images and is expertly run by Gus Ceballos. The exciting news is that Mike Grell's variant covers for the current series have started. Green Arrow is released twice monthly, so since our last episode, both issues 18 and 19 have been released with Mike Grell variant covers. And convention season is here, and since the last episode, we were lucky to see Mike Grell at the Lexington Comic Con, where he was selling both black and white and color prints of the first four variant covers from Green Arrow, number 18 through 21. Mike's table was constantly busy with fans stopping by to buy prints and get comics signed, and Mike was drawing commissions at his table all weekend. We saw commissions in progress for Batman, Green Lantern, and John Sable. Mike was also very gracious and let us conduct a new interview with him at the convention. Since it is the 30th anniversary of the Longbow Hunters, we decided to focus the interview on his time on Green Arrow. We'll be editing that interview, and it should be our next episode. Mike has several other convention appearances scheduled over the next few months, including Huntsville, Alabama in March, East Coast Comic Con in New Jersey in April, and Cheyenne, Wyoming in May. Plus, this summer, Mike will be a special guest at San Diego Comic Con to celebrate the 30th anniversary of the Longbow Hunters. As always, pre-orders for convention sketches can be placed through Scott Cress at Catskill Comics. And if you can't make it to a convention, but would like to get an original drawing, then Scott Cress can help you with that too. Just make your request at catskillcomics.com. We always enjoy sharing listener feedback, so feel free to join in conversations or to write to us anytime. We'd love to hear your opinions about any of Mike Grell's titles over the course of his career. I appreciate knowing what others think of Mike Grell's stories and art. I always enjoy finding out about favorite titles or hearing stories about seeing Mike at a convention. So any comments you send are always appreciated. We'll provide our email address and other ways to reach us at the end of the episode. Warlord Worlds is part of the Rad Adventures podcast network. 
If you enjoy the show, please consider checking out our other podcasts that are available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and YouTube. Xenozoic Xenophiles covers the post-apocalyptic adventure series Xenozoic Tales, featuring Cadillacs and Dinosaurs by writer and artist Mark Schultz. And Trekker Talk is a fan podcast devoted to the adventures of 23rd century bounty hunter Mercy St. Clair from the pages of the sci-fi comic Trekker by writer and artist Ron Randall. Mike Grell, Mark Schultz, and Ron Randall are our favorite comic creators. Their stories are always filled with adventure and interesting characters, and their art is excellent. We hope you'll try out our other shows, and we'll be sure to include links to those podcasts in our show notes. Green Arrow, number 25, October 1989. Witch Hunt, part one. Writer Mike Grell. Pencils Trevor Von Eden and J.J. Birch. Inks Michael Baer. Letters John Costanza. Colors Julia Laquament. Associate Editor Katie Main. Editor Mike Gold. <laughs> It's night in the woods. There's a full moon. An owl sits quietly in a tree watching. Two men carrying guns walk along the forest floor along with four large wolfhounds. The owl spreads its wings and flies away. In a clearing, surrounded by a circle of giant standing stones, a cloaked woman brushes the leaves of a small plant on a baby's head. The nervous mother watches from the shadows. The owl lands in a nearby tree. The cloaked woman looks up at the owl. She quickly hands the baby back to the mother and turns to run. The four wolfhounds rush into the clearing and chase after the cloaked woman. Once deep in the woods, the woman stops and turns and stares at the dogs. The four dogs suddenly stop and begin to wag their tails. Three of the dogs lay down on the ground. The fourth dog slowly walks up beside the woman. She pats it on the head and it follows her further into the woods toward a large manor house in the distance. The woman enters a lavish greenhouse and sees an older man standing at the top of a set of stairs. He is wearing a suit and holding a walking cane. He's been waiting for her. She calls him grandfather. He angrily tells her he isn't going to let her continue on the same path that killed her mother. In a rage, he begins swinging the cane at the flowers and plants around him. Suddenly, he drops the cane and grabs his head and then falls down the stairs, leaving a pool of blood at the bottom of the stairs. It's fall in Seattle. Oliver has been to the grocery store and is enjoying his walk home. At Sherwood Florist, there's a large display in the window. Frankenstein's monster and the bride of Frankenstein stare at Oliver as he walks by. Oliver steps inside and tells Dinah the place looks great. It's Halloween and they're hosting a haunted castle for charity for the Seattle Children's Home. Oliver pulls a bag of candy from the shopping, but Dinah reminds him it's for the kids and instead hands him the mail. There's a letter that will interest him, it's postmarked from Nottingham. Suddenly, Oliver is off to England. Arriving in London, Oliver is greeted by Geoffrey Dunstan, who tells him about the death of his dear friend Alec Hawthorne. He served with Alec in the army and has been his legal counsel for 20 years. He was even with Alec in Cairo when his son was killed by a car bomb. Alec's son's wife, Gwyneth, and her daughter, Rowan, then moved to live with him, and all seemed happy for a while. Gwyneth was of Celtic descent and obsessed with their ancient culture. Over time, she imagined herself a healer. Many locals turned to her for simple and natural herbal remedies, but others began spreading rumors about ancient rites and moonlight rituals. Gwyneth was always frail, and the many cold nights in the forest took their toll, and she was found dead in the woods several years earlier. Alec took great care of his granddaughter Rowan and all seemed well again for several years. But recently, Rowan began to follow in her mother's footsteps, becoming a local healer for the community. 
Alex shared with him that he recently felt that Rowan had cast a spell on him, and he did begin to suffer from seizures and bizarre delusions, and many residents had noticed this. Now he has died, and while all indications are that it was from natural causes, his granddaughter Rowan has vanished. Dunstan is afraid that Rowan blames herself, and he's also afraid that some locals blame her as well, because she inherits a large estate. He wants Oliver to find her before something happens. Driving along the country roads, Oliver stops to enjoy a view of Sherwood Forest. There isn't much of it left, and Oliver moans about so-called progress as he continues his drive. And when Oliver sees the Blue Boar Inn from the Robin Hood legends, he knows that it's where he must stay. While playing darts in the end, Oliver has a conversation with a mysterious man named Constantine, who warns him about the dangers ahead. The excellent cover is by J.J. Birch, and features a shadowed profile of Green Arrow in the background, and an image of Rowan in front of the standing stones in the foreground. I really do like this image. And anyone who knows me knows that I love owls, so any comic that features an owl in the opening panel gets bonus points from me. In fact, I think there are more panels with owls in this issue than in any comic I've ever seen, except maybe for the lovely, family-friendly Owly comics by Andy Runton. If you like owls, or are searching for some great comics for kids, be sure and check out the fun Owly comics at andyrunton.com. We'll include a link in our show notes. I particularly like the double-page title page. It's a stunning image of the circle of standing stones surrounded by tall trees. The full moon is in the background, and an owl is flying across the page. And another sequence I love is a hilarious visual joke in the art when Oliver is waiting in line at customs. Standing behind him in the first panel is a couple, and the woman is holding a shopping bag that says, Just Married. In the second panel, the woman is obviously pregnant. And in the third panel, the same couple is standing with two young children, and the woman is holding a baby. It's really good fun. You can really feel Oliver's excitement about being in Nottingham and Sherwood Forest in the issue, and the cameo with Constantine at the Blue Boar Inn is fun too. As a side note, the Blue Boar Inn is frequently referenced in Robin Hood stories, including Howard Pyle's definitive collection of adventures titled The Merry Adventures of Robin Hood. And if you're interested, you can pick up a copy of that book with illustrations by Mike Grell. Green Arrow number 26, November 1989, Witch Hunt, Part 2, Ollie of Sherwood. Writer, Mike Grell. Pencils, J.J. Birch. Inks, Michael Bear. Letters, John Costanza. Colors, Julia Lackament. Assistant Editor, Katie Main. Editor, Mike Gold. The story picks back up at the Blue Boar Inn as Oliver listens to some of the locals talking about how important Alec Hawthorne was to the community and referring to Rowan as a witch who set demons on him. Oliver later drives to the Hawthorne estate and searches the large manor house for clues. He picks up the walking cane that had been left leaning against the wall when Alec Hawthorne was taken away. Oliver carries it around with him as he admires the flowers and plants in the greenhouse. Hearing someone else in the house, Oliver hides until he sees it as Jeffrey Dunstan, who asks if he's found anything. Oliver knows Rowan has been there. The plants and herbs are being well cared for. More examples of witchcraft in Dunstan's mind. He feels she needs psychiatric care. Oliver disagrees with Dunstan's assessment, pointing out the medicinal qualities of several of the plants. But Oliver knows how to find her. She's left a clear trail for a tracker like him, especially with a large dog he can tell is accompanying her. Changing into the Green Arrow, Oliver walks into the woods. Oliver relishes being in Sherwood Forest after dark. A bright moon in the sky lights his way. He thinks about Robin Hood, Marion, Little John, and Friar Tuck. 
Then suddenly, standing beside a tree, Oliver sees the large figure of Hearn the Hunter, the protector of the forest. Hearn tells him the days of the longbow are all but gone, but they live on in the greenwood. Hearn tells him that one day the trees will speak his name. Hearn then tells him of a woman who has not forgotten the old ways and who woke him from his sleep. Suddenly, there's a flash of light, and Oliver sees a castle on a hill, and a dragon flies overhead and lands nearby. Oliver's delusions continue as a cloaked woman leads him into a cave where she builds a fire to warm him. When Oliver's head finally clears, he sees Rowan standing over him, and she tells him that when she found him, she could tell he had been drugged. The two walk through the grove and toward the stone circle. She tells him that everything in the forest is useful and good. Following at their side, her dog begins to growl, and Geoffrey Dunstan steps from behind one of the giant standing stones with armed men. As one of the rifles aims in their direction, Oliver fires an arrow directly down the barrel of the gun. Dunstan protests, telling Green Arrow that Rowan needs psychiatric care, but Oliver knows that what he really means is confinement. Oliver has figured it out. The walking cane he picked up earlier was coated in LSD. That is what gave Alec Hawthorne the seizures and delusions he was suffering from. Jeffrey Dunstan had always been there for Alec Hawthorne as his friend and legal counsel, but became jealous that the estate would go to Rowan while he would get nothing. He concocted a plan to kill Alec Hawthorne and put the blame on Rowan because of the locals' fear of her witchcraft. Dunstan raises his rifle, but the faithful hound rushes at him, knocking him against one of the large standing stones. The impact causes the top of the stone to break away, collapsing and crushing Dunstan. Before leaving the forest, the green arrow pauses and fires an arrow up into the sky, leaving a part of him behind. As he walks away, the arrow lands at the feet of Hearn the Hunter, who watches him from the distance. All was not a delusion, as Oliver might have thought. The cover to the issue is again by J.J. Birch, and is a great companion to the cover of the first issue. Again, there is a shadowed image of Green Arrow in the background, but this time he is facing the opposite direction. And in the foreground, there is an image of Green Arrow with his bow in hand as a giant dragon flies overhead. I really love this entire story. It's a great little mystery filled with wonderful locations and imagery. I like the scenes of Oliver conducting his investigations, whether it's questioning the locals at the Blue Boar Inn or checking the plants at the Hawthorne Estate. The scenes in Sherwood Forest are favorites. The artist really captures the look of a forest and a double-page spread when Oliver imagines seeing Robin Hood, Marion, and Friar Tuck is truly beautiful. I really like seeing Hearn the Hunter in the issue. The character was used extensively in the excellent Robin of Sherwood television series in the 1980s, and we know that Mike Grell is a big fan of that series. He knows several of the people who worked on the show, and is particularly good friends with Mark Ryan, who played Nazir in the series. Hey, this is the ghost of the King of Comics, Jack Kirby. When I'm not haunting Stan Lee, I'm listening to my favorite comic book podcast, Double Page Spread. Each week, Wendy Freeman talks to creators like Cullen Bunn, Mark Wade, Evan Dorkin, and more. She is one cool dame who knows a lot about comics. So when I'm at my drawn board in heaven cranking out fourth world pages, I'm listening to Double Page Spread. Available on iTunes, Libsyn, and the Stitcher Network. He The Warlord, number 33, May 1980, Birds of Prey, 
Written and illustrated by Mike Grell. Inker, Vince Coletta. Colors, Adrian Roy. Letters, John Costanza. Editor, Jack C. Harris. Picking up from the previous issue, Travis Morgan is flying the metal disc over the forests of Skataris. Shakira is in her cat form until Morgan starts talking to her, and she transforms back into a beautiful woman. Morgan asks, Are you a cat who becomes a woman, or a woman who becomes a cat? And Shakira answers, Maybe it's magic. Morgan shows her the remnants of the Hellfire Stone and tells her he keeps it to remind him that there is a limit to magic. It couldn't save his son. Suddenly, several winged hawkmen swoop down from the skies, snaring Shakira with a rope and flying away with her. Another hawkman swoops in behind Morgan, knocking him from the disc. Morgan is barely able to hold on to the control lever, preventing him from falling, but the lever is damaged, and the disc begins to careen erratically toward the ground, crashing in the distance. There, the unconscious Morgan is found by a group of dwarves who carry him back to their mayor to ask what they should do with him, but when Morgan wakes, most of them quickly run away. Talking to the mayor, Morgan explains that he needs to find the Hawkmen because they've captured his quote-unquote kitty. The mayor tells him that the Hawkmen often raid the area and carry off villagers back to their nest. Though a coward at heart, the mayor will lead him there. But first, a toast. Morgan is taken aback by the power of the drink, saying it must be 200 proof, but it gives him an idea. Morgan asks for a goatskin filled with the liquid. The mayor leads Morgan to a giant tree at the edge of a lake. The Hawkman's giant, nest-like home is in the branches at the very top of the tall tree. Taking a rope, Morgan slowly climbs the tree, keeping a watch for the Hawkman to return. In the giant nest, Morgan is shocked to see the bones of human remains. The Hawkman obviously make meals of the villagers they capture. Morgan pours the dwarves' alcohol all around the nest and waits in the shadows. The Hawkman soon return with Shakira still dangling from a rope. But before they realize anyone is there, Morgan leaps from the shadows, cutting the rope. As the Hawkmen turn to attack, Morgan throws a torch to the ground, igniting the nest in flames, and then he leaps into the lake below, dragging Shakira behind him. During the fall, she angrily tells Morgan she would prefer to take her chances with the fire rather than the water. As Morgan walks up on shore, the dwarves rush from the woods to celebrate his victory, and the mayor asks if he rescued his cat. Morgan replies, Yes, but I don't think she'll be speaking to me for a while. And he looks up at a very wet Shakira, angrily staring at him from a tree branch. The cover is by Mike Grell and features an image of Travis Morgan aiming his gun. The perspective makes the gun loom large as though it is going to leap off the page. I particularly like the page where the Hawkmen capture Shakira with their ropes and lift her off the disc as another Hawkman slams into Morgan from behind. The panels are all drawn at angles, and parts of images overlap each other, creating a fast-paced feel to the battle. The dwarves are fun characters and good comic relief. They're sort of a cross between the Wizard of Oz and Sleeping Beauty, and maybe distant relatives of the wizard Mongo Ironhand. I really laughed as the cat in Shakira came out when she said she would prefer to take her chances with the fire rather than getting wet. That was a fun sequence. And on a side note, I thought it was neat that the Hostess Fruit Pies ad in the issue features Green Arrow. A perfect coincidence for us. The Warlord, number 34, June 1980. Sword of the Sorcerer. Written and illustrated by Mike Grell. Inks, Vince Coletta. Colors, Adrian Roy. Letters, Ben Oda. Editor, Jack C. Harris. Our story picks up with our long-missing friends, Mashista and Mariah, traveling with the wizard Mongo Ironhand. 
they are on their way to see Rolf the Wretched, the wizard overlord, to see if he can return them to their own time. Back in the present, the dwarf mayor has a gift for Morgan to thank him for ridding them of the evil Hawkman. The mayor takes him to a room with a magnificent ornate sword that dates back 50 generations to the age of the wizard kings. Morgan takes the sword in hand, and the mayor tells him the name of the sword is Hellfire. Morgan notices the hilt of the sword has a place for a gemstone. With the name Hellfire, Morgan knows it is too much of a coincidence. He takes the Hellfire gemstone and inserts it into the hilt of the sword, and there's a flash of light. In the past, Mongo, Mashist, and Mariah enter Rolf's castle, but they quickly find they are not welcome as Rolf loudly bellows at them for entering his realm unbidden. Mongo tries to explain the circumstances when there is suddenly a flash of light and Morgan appears in the center of the chamber. The friends are surprised to see each other, but there is no time for pleasantries, as Rolf loudly and angrily demands that Morgan give him the sword he is carrying. When Morgan refuses, Rolf twists a lever, and trap doors open, and our group of heroes all plummet into the darkness below. Mashis, Mariah, and Mongo quickly regroup, but when Mongo casts a spell to give them light, they find themselves facing a giant beast. They begin to attack the beast, but it doesn't attack in return. Instead, it only seems to defend itself. Mongo realizes what is happening and casts a spell and the beast transforms into Travis Morgan. Mongo explains that Morgan was never a beast, but rather that Rolf cast a spell on them to make them see a beast. The beast never attacked them because Morgan would not fight his friends, even if they were attacking him. The friends finally have time to catch up. Mashista and Mariah tell him they escorted Tara back to Shambhala and explain how they came to be in the time of the Age of Wizard Kings, and Morgan tells them about the war that is coming to Shambhala. But before they can finish their conversation, there's a clap of thunder, and Rolf appears before them, demanding the sword that Morgan is carrying. It is then Morgan realizes that Rolf literally carries the same sword, just from a different period of time. Rolf pulls his sword from its sheath, and the two rush into battle. The blades clash together, sending sparks and crackling energy all around the chamber. The battle seems evenly matched until Morgan manages to strike the gemstone in Rolf's blade and it shatters and falls. As Rolf looks on in disbelief, Morgan's sword leaps from his hand and kills Rolf. Mongo explains that the price of the Hellfire sword is that once it's drawn from its sheath, it must always taste blood. When Morgan didn't kill Rolf himself, the sword exacted the price. With the death of Rolf, Mongo explains that Mashista Mariah are now trapped in the past. However, Morgan can return simply by placing the sword back in its sheath. Mariah tells Morgan there are enough wonders in the age of the Wizard Kings to satisfy any scientist, and Mashis tells his friend not to worry about them because now he and Mariah have each other and are happy together. Morgan bids farewell and sheaths his sword and vanishes in a flash of light. The cover by Mike Grell features a dramatic image of Travis Morgan holding the Hellfire sword above his head. Energy crackles from all around it. I like the way the double-page title page is drawn at an angle so that the Hellfire sword can stretch from one corner to the other, creating a great perspective. I like the way Shakira rides on Morgan's shoulder while in her cat form, but she leaps away and avoids being drawn back in time with him. It was terrific to see Mashista Mariah again. I really love those characters, and I've definitely enjoyed the stories set back in time with Mongo. I definitely like that Morgan refused to attack his friends. He didn't know why they were attacking him, but he still refused to do anything other than defend himself. 
I also love the way Mike Grell weaves the different story elements together over time. You never know when a plot will come back up or when an almost forgotten story thread will reappear. Take the Earth's mightiest heroes, each an invincible champion of justice, and band them together to assemble the legendary Justice League of America. For 261 issues and three annuals, the DC Universe was defended from threats on Earth and beyond by this legendary team, operating from a cave in Happy Harbor to a satellite orbiting 22,300 miles above the Earth to uh, Detroit. Justice's First Dawn, a classic Justice League of America podcast, will follow the League through all their evolutions. Please join your host, Mike Peacock, as I seek to cover all of the issues of the classic pre-crisis Justice League of America series. Through the magic of the JLA transporter, each issue will be randomized, with special episodes covering a complete story arc if needed. Along with the issue coverage, we shall also look at what the then-current members of the Justice League were up to in solo appearances in other comics for the JLA cover month issue. So do not hesitate to activate your JLA signal device for Justice's First Dawn, a classic Justice League of America podcast on classicjla.podbean.com or by subscribing through iTunes. John Sable Freelance, number 21, February 1985. Widowmaker, written and illustrated by Mike Grell. Letters, Ken Brusenak. Colors, Janice Cohen. Editor, Mike Gold. John Sable is still in the hospital recovering from the gunshot wounds he suffered in the previous story, and it's obviously visitation hours. First, the rookie cop from the previous issue shows up asking why Sable backed up his story when he knows he didn't identify himself. Sable shares some harsh doses of reality, explaining that if the rookie had faced the actual killer, he would have been killed himself. He needs to improve or he'll be dead the next time. Next, Mike Blackman comes to visit and brings Sable a photo of his wife and children. As he stares at the photo, he finally opens up and tells Mike about his family, and he asks Mike to go out to dinner with him when he finally gets out of the hospital. Sable goes through grueling physical therapy at the hospital, and as the days pass, he notices a blonde woman who always wears a wide-brimmed hat who visits the hospital every day. Sable asks his physical therapist about the woman. She is Carla Bellows and is known as the White Widow. She was convicted of trying to kill her husband, Paul, five years earlier. He has been in a coma ever since. The woman is currently out of jail, pending an appeal on a technicality about how the evidence was collected. She had to pay $3.5 million in bail, but that is no problem with her husband's $50 million estate. While Sable didn't know her, he did know her husband from many years earlier. When Sable was in the Olympics for the pentathlon, Paul Bellows was training horses and helped him train for the equestrian events. Sable confronts the woman in the hospital one day and tells her she won't get away with it. When he is finally well enough to leave the hospital, Sable begins to follow her. Restaurants, shops, the ballet, Everywhere she goes, Sable is there, and he makes certain that she sees him. It is finally the day before her appeal hearing, and Carla is out riding her horse around her huge estate. She rounds a corner where a car is parked beside a stone wall and sees Sable sitting on top of the wall. He's been following her, waiting for her to run, and has finally found her escape plan. The car is sitting and waiting. There is a passport with a fake name and a Swiss bank book with the account where she has transferred her husband's money. Sable is there to ensure she doesn't leave. In a rage, she begins to race the horse toward the wall, leaping at the spot where Sable is sitting, 
but he drops out of the way at the last moment. The horse's legs hit the top of the tall wall, sending Carla flying over the wall to the ground. Later, Sable stops by the hospital to visit Carla. He shows her the front page of the newspaper with the double headline declaring that she won her appeal and is free. But ironically, she suffered a tragic riding accident the day before that has left her paralyzed from the neck down. Sable smiles satisfied and walks away. The cover is terrific and makes great use of negative space. A white background reveals an image of the White Widow with just a few lines and shadows creating a swooping wide-brimmed hat. In the foreground, an armed John Sable seems to step larger than life out of the city of Manhattan. The issue does a good job of showing the real effects of Sable's injuries. It takes him a long time to heal from the injuries he suffered in the previous issue. The sequences with Mike are touching as Sable begins to open up to someone new for the first time in a very long time. There are several really great images in the issue showing off Mike Grell's line work, including a shadowed image of Mike when she visits Sable in the hospital, and an image of the White Widow that overlays several panels on another page. As we've seen many times before, Mike Grell can really capture animals. The many images of the horse in this issue really capture its graceful movement. And I just want to chime in and say that despite Carla's very evil ways, I do love her wide-brim hats. Very classy. Mike Grell needs to draw more women wearing those hats. Hey everybody, I'm Paul Spataro. I don't know if you know me, but I'm a regular on Back to the Bins along with my friends Dr. Bill Robinson. Hello. And Mr. Scott Gardner. Hey, how's it going? Andy's been asking us for a promo for the show for the longest time, and Bill has been writing it for the longest time. Bill, you got that promo written yet? Okay, so, anyway, what we do is we review three comic books. We try to do it every week. Usually it's a Marvel, a DC, and a Captain Canuck book for Scott. So, tune in every week to Back to the Bins to listen to our show. You can find us at twotruefreaks.com. Next up is our coverage of Mike Grell's run on the Legion of Superheroes. Mike started his career at DC Comics with a brief run on Aquaman, followed by a long run on the Legion, where his excellent artwork quickly won over fans, and he remained the artist on the book from issues 202 through 224. Knowing there are many knowledgeable fans of the Legion of Superheroes, we invited guests onto the show to discuss these stories, and the response was terrific. Every issue of Mike Grell's run has been requested by one of his many fans. We're very excited to have these experts covering these fun stories. Joining us today are Mike Lane of the podcast Comics in the Golden Age and Jeff Messer of the Geek Brain Podcast. It is great to have our friend Jeff back on the show, and we give a big welcome to our friend Mike, who we've had the pleasure to meet a couple of times at cons in the past. You can also hear both Jeff and Mike on Episode 8 of our podcast. That's the episode we've recorded at Heroes Con last year, and it features an interview with Mike Grell. If you're a Legion fan or just interested in learning more about the team, then we encourage you to visit the Legion of Superbloggers. Their extensive site features news, reviews, and discussion from a great group of dedicated fans. We highly recommend the group and will provide links to their site in our show notes. And Mike Lane will have a post at the Legion of Superbloggers to coincide with this episode. So be sure to check that out. A big thank you to Russell Burbage for arranging that. Hello, this is Mike Lane of the Comics in the Golden Age podcast. First of all, I very much want to thank Darren and Ruth for inviting me on their show. I'm here to talk about Superboy and the Legion of Superheroes number 206, 
cover dated February 1975, with an on-sale date of October 24, 1974. The cover is by Nick Carty. It has an image of Superboy lying on the ground amidst some wreckage. You get the sense there's been a fight. Standing over him is this very menacing robot holding his cape, and towards him you see Feral Lad Invisible Kid flying, and there's a word balloon where he shouts, Feral Lad Invisible Kid, but you're both dead. How can you save me? The credits to the inside include writer Carrie Bates, drawing and inking by Mr. Mike Rell, letters by Ben Oda, and edited by Murray Boltonoff. There is a splash page with Superboy having a nightmare. We see in his dream he is being chased by Feral Lad when an image of Invisible Kid also appears. Uh, Superboy wakes up, stands, and as the ghost images of both Feral Lad and Invisible Kid look on, Superboy screams that he must be losing his mind because they are both dead. The title to the story is The Legionnaires Who Haunted Superboy. The story opens with Superboy flying over Smallville on his way to the old armory, which he is promised to help demolish to make way for a much-needed playground in its place. Just as he is about to fly into the building, it begins to crumble and he is shocked to see someone inside, apparently a superpowered human battering ram who is already at work destroying the structure. He is even more shocked to see that it is actually Feral Lad, the deceased member of the Legion of Superheroes. He is too numb to follow Feral Lad as he flies away, and Superboy begins to wonder if he imagined what he saw. The next day, Superboy is walking his classmate Susie to school when they see a skydiver being blown off course. But before Superboy can leap to his rescue, the man stops falling, and he looks as if someone's carrying him as he gently lands on the roof of a building. Then a costume figure materializes holding the man, and Superboy is shocked again to see his deceased friend Invisible Kid also alive. He notices that others can see him too, so he knows this is real, but before he can recover from his surprise, Invisible Kid disappears. That night, Superboy sits in the basement of the Kent home, making a recording of the events of the day. He is interrupted by both Feral Lad and the Invisible Kid. They ask Superboy to use his x-ray vision to prove that they are real, and he does seeing living tissue inside. The duo refuse to reveal to Superboy how they are alive, but they explain that they commandeered a time bubble and returned to his era because they are out of practice. They need Superboy to test them to see if their powers are still up to Legion standards, and if not, the pair will forget about rejoining the Legion and exile themselves to another time. Superboy's crisis alarm sounds, and the trio put their plans on hold to investigate. On the outskirts of town, they see a large robot rising out of the ground. The robot shoots Superboy with an energy ray that surrounds him and he is paralyzed. The hero tells his friends to escape because the robot is too powerful. Declaring that they are prepared to sacrifice their lives again if necessary, the pair leap into action. Invisible Kid distracts the robot and also gets caught in an energy ray, but he has given Feral Lad time to get behind it, and he is able to deliver a powerful blow that takes the robot down. The energy ray around Superboy disappears, and Invisible Kid reveals that he rendered himself invisible so he could escape his energy ray before it killed him, which I guess means he's intangible as well, but anyways. Having proved that they still have what it takes, the pair return to the 30th century, but just as their time bubble approaches Legion headquarters, it explodes. Monel, Saturn Girl, and Brainiac 5 appear, and it is revealed that the pair were actually clones of the original Legionnaires and could only survive for 48 hours before their cells exploded. The clones themselves thought they were the real thing, and their entire visit back in time was staged to see if the clones could prove to be as reliable and trustworthy as the original members in the event that Brainiac is ever able to perfect the process so clones of their friends could be brought back permanently. 
Superboy was contacted that morning, and he built the robot to help Brainiac with his plan. Now, some thoughts as to this story. The entire story revolves around the mystery behind the return of two deceased members. I am still amazed when it comes up in reading Silver and Bronze Age Legion stories that members have given their lives in the past. To have members of a superhero team actually die in the Silver Age stories, it's hard to say how groundbreaking that was, particularly in a comic that was so clearly designed to appeal to a very young audience. And not just that it was groundbreaking, but I think it was one of the major aspects of the Legion's early history that helped create such a devoted fan base early on. It made them so unique, and it gave their stories a real sense of risk and drama that were missing in other stories of that era. As to the art, this is very early Mike Grell, obviously. It is art much more raw, less polished, but I do enjoy watching him develop over his Legion run, and I think he does a great job here. I particularly like his image of Feral Lad on page 4 when Superman realizes it was him destroying the armory. I like the robot. It had sort of a 1950s sci-fi head on top of a more modern muscular body. I always love the clothing and hairstyle of these issues. I really get a kick out of longer 70s hairstyles. Even here where I believe the Smallville portion of the story was supposed to take place in the 50s. I think that was still the world at the time that the Superboy stories were supposed to take place about 20 years prior to whatever the present of the publishing date was for Superman. And this issue came out about 74. I do think you could really think a little too hard about the morality of the whole cloning thing. I mean, these were these were real living beings who thought they were the real people. And Brainiac created them knowing they would apparently only survive for a short time, which suggests he's done this before, but he still created them for his experiment. But as questionable as the morality of it is, it's not that inconsistent with Brainiac's character either. So I found that part of the story interesting. The second story I'm going to be covering from this issue is entitled Welcome Home Daughter. It's the same creative team as the first story, and the uh, featured character in this story is Princess Projectra. This story opens with Projectra recalling her first visit to her home planet of Rondo in over two years. Prior to leaving Legion headquarters, her boyfriend Karate Kid threw a major tantrum over her visit, basically because he's feeling neglected. He complains that he stayed by her bedside, waiting for her to pull through a recent illness, only to see her immediately leave to see her parents now that she feels better. After he storms off, Projector departs in her spacecraft, annoyed that he never even gave her a chance to explain. She recalls that her father, King Voxiv, hopefully I'm pronouncing that right, you read this stuff but you don't have to say it very often. So, her father, King Voxiv, rules a violent kingdom that is still in the stage of development similar to our Middle Ages and there have been many attempts to overthrow him. Given how long it's been since her last visit, she's become concerned as to his current status. Arriving sooner than expected, and still feeling a bit fatigued from her recent illness, she lands near her father's castle, and is immediately taken prisoner. She is brought before the king, who turns out to not be her father. The new king tells her that her parents are in the dungeon, waiting to be surrendered to the Margu. He also tells her that since she is a legionnaire, she is a dangerous new threat that must be disposed of without delay. Her flight ring is taken, and she is led outside to await the coming of the Morgu, which turns out to be this very ugly green dragon, grasshopper, bat-like ears, three eyes like Trigon, bizarre creature. <laughs> Unable to outrun him or use her illusion power, she is rescued by Karate Kid, who suddenly appears and swoops her away from the monster. 
Relieved and overjoyed at her rescue, she leans in to kiss him, and he actually slaps her with a loud thwack sound effect. She asks what he is doing, and he says he is trying to clear her head. She is aware they are standing in a barren landscape, and the two realize that in her dizziness, as an after-effect of her illness, she lost control of her projection power, and she created an illusion of her parents' kingdom on a lifeless planetoid. Projector understands how she could envision things from her home planet, like the palace knights and evil king, but she wonders how could she ever have dreamed up something as horrible as the Morgu. Well, it turns out that she didn't, and the creature is an original habitant of that planetoid. It attacks the pair, and Karate Kid is unable to defeat the creature with his blows. Fortunately, Projector is able to use her power to create a gruesome illusion around Karate Kid, which startles the beast and causes him to drop the hero. Projector grabs Karate Kid and swiftly flies them both away. Back at the spacecraft, Karate Kid apologizes for being too hot-headed to understand her feelings for her parents. She not only forgives him, but invites him to return with her to her home planet and the two depart for Hirando. A few thoughts on this story. I don't have a particular attachment to Princess Projector as a character, but one thing I've always liked about her is the world she comes from. I think it's a really interesting contrast for her as a Legion member in this futuristic universe to come from a more primitive world. To compare her sort of background to all the other worlds that the other Legionnaires come from or visit throughout the course of these stories, that her world is still stuck in the Middle Ages, and not just technologically, but it comes with all the sort of superstitious trappings of that kind of world. I, I always get a kick out of that when we see that in this story. As far as the art, I think Mike Grell does a great job with the castle, the knights, the king who usurps the crown. All that, he's really good at drawing that world. I do have to admit, I'm not a huge fan of the Morgu in the way he draws him, but that's a minor point throughout the rest of the story. I think otherwise he does a great job. So this was a, it's a light story. It's a short one. I covered it rather quickly, but I, I did enjoy it. I think it's a worthwhile tale, and I do appreciate, again, any visit back to her more primitive world. With that, I do want to thank Darren and Ruth again for allowing me to participate in their coverage of the um, Legion of Superhero Stories by Mike Rell. I really appreciate it. Again, my name is Mike Lane, and I am part of the Comics in the Golden Age podcast. We are available on iTunes and Stitcher, and we also have a Facebook page. We also have a Twitter account, which is probably the more active of the two versus the Facebook page. It is Comics in the GA. So we like just like to celebrate Golden Age comics, and particularly the art, the stories, you know, post a lot of samples of artists and creators. That's kind of our main focus. So again, thank you, Darren and Ruth, and it was a pleasure to participate in this episode, and thank you. Goodbye. Hello, Warlord Worlders. My name is Jeff Messer of iHeartRadio and the Geek Brain Popcast. First of all, I want to say big thank you, as always, to Ruth and Darren, not only for doing such a great podcast show, but for inviting me and many others to join the show to share our love of Mike Grell in our own special way. And in this case, talking about the original Superboy in the Legion of Superheroes run that Mike Grell did back in the mid-1970s. We're going to kick things off here this episode talking about Superboy in the Legion of Superheroes issue number 207. It had two stories in it, as was the, the custom back in the day. Major story up front with a few more pages and then a backup story, both Legion of Superheroes stories, both written by Kerry Bates and drawn by Mike Grell. The, uh, the main story, the first story, is one that is featured also on the cover 
and it is called The Rookie Who Betrayed the Legion. There was always an interesting recurring theme throughout uh, all of the Legion comic books over the years, even going back to the Adventure Comics run, where there was a traitor in the midst of the Legion. There was always some sort of uh, angst and turmoil, somebody betraying someone else and betraying the Legion and so forth. This was a, a trope that they used quite often. The uh, The cover of this is a, is a really great cover. I remember this was one of those uh, issues that uh, I didn't have as a kid. I started collecting comics with Legion, uh, Superboy and the Legion number 219. So this one was obviously earlier than that, and I remember this was one of those holes in my collection that I had to complete years later. In fact, I think it was in maybe 1987 or 88 at a Heroes convention in Charlotte, North Carolina, when I went in with a list of books that I was looking for and back issues and went digging through the the, uh, the long boxes and, and finding. Anyway, it was a great cover, really well done, a drawing by Mike Grell showing a science police officer eavesdropping outside of the meeting room door of the Legion of Superheroes and a big giant colossal boy hand reaching down from above about to snatch him up. And it reflects an actual panel that turns up in the book a little bit later on, even if the context of it is, is not quite the same. Page one is one of those setup types of pages, a little teaser synopsis page of what is coming in this issue. Uh, it shows just this general action sort of scene, and then the uh, the science police officer in the background saying to himself, oh, I'm going to betray the Legion and, and, and whatnot. So this was just kind of one of those, aha, this is what's going to happen in the book. Here's a little kind of encapsulation of that. We uh, see there, uh, when we turn the page, we see the Earth president with a, a sharp, pointy-collared cape. The fashion of the 30th century was uh, something else, let me tell you. He's on a video screen talking to the Legion about the escape of Universo, whom they have tangled with in the past, and they've captured twice already. Now, Universo is one of those big, big villains of the Legion, and you would think that if you're going to use Universo, this is going to be you know, one of those 100-page giant or these uh, multi-issue epic tales. It turns out to be a lot less than that. The third time that they apprehend Universo, not so much of a fight, not so much of a story. Uh, the story in instead is going to focus on a little something else that's going on here. So naturally, the Legion decide to take him up on the offer, they, they will go and they will bring in Universo. Just then, the alarms go off, sounding an intruder, and we get our first real look at um, Officer Devron snooping, snooping around the headquarters. And it's not quite like the, the cover depicted, but, but very similar. So uh, Officer Devron, we see wearing his science police uniform and this nice, big, bulbous kind of helmet. Uh, very kind of cool design for the, the mid-'70s. Devron tells them about an encounter that he and his senior partner had while tracking Universo uh, a year previous through the mutated jungles of Africa. And his partner is murdered by a giant Venus flytrap-looking plant that Universo is controlling. Devron insists on accompanying the Legion on their mission because he, he owes Universo. He says, it's time to pay Universo back, so I need to come along with you. And they take him along. Obviously, they trust the science police, so why not? Of course, all is not as it seems because Devron begins to betray the Legion, seemingly to help Universo escape. Uh, Chameleon Boy does trick him by morphing into Universo's visage, and Devron then confesses that the plant that ate his partner was not actually under Universo's control. Universo actually had controlled another plant to stop it from eating Devron himself. After which, Devron then felt like he owed Universo some sort of debt. And uh, he was there with the Legion to help repay that debt by helping Universo escape and preventing the Legion from capturing him. But they encounter then, they see Superboy is uh, fighting. And suddenly Superboy is fighting with Timberwolf and Shrinking Violet. And so they surmise 
rather quickly that Superboy must be under Universo's mind control and Supes and Universo fly off together and they, they fly kind of around the edge of this uh, outcropping of rock, mountainous rock there. And when they emerge on the other side, the Legion are like, aha, there they are, let's, let's go get them. And they, they launch their attack. They go to capture Universal and Superboy. And Chameleon Boy takes charge, leading Lightlass to use her powers to make Superboy weightless to stop him while they tangle with Universo. Uh, Devron, suddenly he turns and he fires his stun gun on Superboy, making the others think, oh no, Devron has gone bad again. But it is soon revealed that Devron, using uh, some sort of superior detective skills here, uh, had deduced that Universal was indeed tricking them by making them think Superboy was him and he was Superboy. And Superboy, the Superboy that they thought Devron had shot, fades away and it turns out that it's Universo and he's using some sort of mind trick to make it look like he's Superboy to them. Devron actually zapped Universo, thus saving the day. Got that? All right, so it is a little oversimplistic. It is a little contrived. But much of the stories back in those days really were. Uh, Carrie Bates, who is an excellent writer, really just, uh, to me, did not have a great feel for the Legion overall. Not too far from now, we will see Jim Shooter coming back to the book and having a real kind of renaissance period with the Legion. We're still in that formula of the early 1970s where the stories were short, had a bit of a lesson built in to them, a little Aesop's Fables kind of spin. They felt like a short Super Friends type cartoon of that era. And Carrie Bates excelled at those sort of stories back in the day. Now, Mike Grell does some really unique work in this story, just showing that he is a superior artist. He was ahead of his time as an artist, really inventive with some of the things that he that he did. He shows Superboy at one point flying slightly off of the panel on page nine, and then he does the same trick again with Chameleon Boy on page 12, where you know it's a view of them flying toward the camera, if you will, and they're actually flying outside of the, the boundaries of the panel. And we didn't see a lot of this until somebody like Mike Grell came along. Uh, this was a, a decidedly inventive thing that Mike was doing. Also, I want to say maybe one of the coolest Mike Grell drawings in all, all of the Legion comes in this issue. And it is on um, page four. If you look at page four at the bottom, there's a panel in the story that shows Devron as he begins to recount his tale, flashing back to him and his partner in Africa. And we get a, a big kind of side view headshot of Devron with the, the big science police helmet. And inside of the, the, the back of the helmet, the bubble of the helmet, we see the image of, of Devron and his partner flying through the jungles of Africa. So it's like a dream sequence, a flashback, and it's, it's done. The panel is inside of this big bulbous helmet that he's wearing. And it is really a great drawing, probably my favorite in the story. Devron is making his first official appearance here as the science police officer character who would return many, many times later in the series. Paul Levitz would later make a lot of these throwaway characters, uh, bring them back and create a, a deep bench tapestry of characters as uh, he started his later run in the book. Now, if I recall, there's a little bit of a story here. Mike Grell once mentioned that Devron, as he drew him in this issue, was meant to be an African-American character, perhaps tying into that Devron and his partner were in Africa pursuing Universo a year earlier. And uh, Mike Grell had done this, I believe, as he was telling the story, because there was a lack of racial diversity in comics at the time. Now, either editorial nixed the notion or the colorist made a mistake, not sure which, but Devron, in future appearances, turned out to be a red-headed Irishman. Uh, don't hold me to the exact details of that story, but I do believe that that was, uh, at one point in time, Devron was supposed to be African-American. Uh, Mike Grell would later uh, 
draw the character of Tyrock, which was the first full-fledged African-American character to be introduced. Now, the backup story in this issue is an interesting one. It's called Lightning Lad's Day of Dread, written by Carrie Bates, drawn by Mike Grell. We start with a uh, shadowy person watching home movies that show a young Garth Rands, his brother, Mecht, and their baby sister, Ayla. Then the shadowy figure uses electrical powers to fry the video monitor out of anger. We see Lightning Lad as he pushes his way past a very concerned shrinking Violet, and then he violently confronts Element Lad, taking a Legion cruiser that has been signed out uh, for a, a trip to Japan by Karate Kid. Now, once he flies off, Brainiac 5 and Cosmic Boy, they try to figure it all out. What caused Garth to go crazy? What caused Lightning Lad to have this uh, outburst of anger and, and punch Element Lad and shove everybody else around? Why is he so mad? Why is he so mad? So they decide they're going to go check with Ayla, Lightning Lad's sister, who is now Lightlass in the Legion continuity. But she is sick. She has a bad case of Rigel fever. And she can't really help them at all because she's uh, comatose. So the story then shifts to a desolate part of space where Garth has gone to confront his villainous brother, also now known as Lightning Lord. And we have some backstory there on the death of the Rand's parents who died at this place in, in space while they were en route to meet with Garth and Ayla. A meteor slammed into their ship and killed them. And as a result, Garth erected a statue monument to their parents out of this meteor, and it, it floats there in space. So they make it a, a regular thing to come back and, and pay tribute to their fallen parents. And sure enough, Mech shows up, and he and Garth shout at each other a bit, hurling lightning bolts, and then they finally call it a draw out of respect for their parents. Mech gets a bit of a, a sympathetic moment in this, as he too is grieving the death of his parents, uh, showing a little more depth in him than just being a stereotypical mustache-twirling villain. Now, I've been a huge Lightning Lad fan from the start of my love for the Legion, so I loved stories that centered on Lightning Lad. However, this one is a major problem. It is wildly out of continuity on a number of levels. First of all, the video at the beginning that he watches shows uh, Mecht, his brother, with white hair already as a child, even though that happened much later on and, in fact, was told in an issue not that long before this very story. And also, it depicts Mecht and Garth as being twins and Ayla as the younger sister, which is a, a massive mistake that I can't believe Carrie Bates didn't know, and I can't believe the editorial didn't fix. Ayla is Garth's twin, and Mech, having been born without a twin on, on Winneth, which is their home planet, he became an outcast. It was not normal that someone be born without a twin. This, all these mistakes are almost unforgivable in this issue, and it, it invalidates this story completely from Legion canon that should be ignored by all fans who are trying to make sense of anything. Again, I can't believe that Carrie Bates would make such a mistake and, and not correct it and not fix it. Uh, for Grell's part, he draws what he's told to draw, and, uh, and, and he makes it work, and it's really great. He does some uh, great work here in this backup. Uh, a lot of the panels are, are kind of distance and action-y shots, especially later in the story. But early in the story, there's some really great stuff. In fact, the first panel that shows Lightning Lad full on, like, you know, you see the shadows, and then suddenly you see Lightning Lad emerging from the shadows, is one of my favorite images of 
Garth of all time. This is such a great Mike Grell piece uh, of art. It's a perfect pose. It's a very actiony pose. It uses shadows and light in a very effective manner as he is walking toward the door and Shrinking Violet is there. Uh, it's just this great one-panel shot of Lightning Lad. It's a, a perfect image of the character, and it really is. It's uh, a great one. I love this panel. It's on page two of the story. And uh, on page five there, we get two other great panels. Not action-driven panels, but these are panels of Ayla, who is in her coma, and she is just uh, lying there, able to hear and able to think to herself about what is happening. It's not a very active shot, but these are gorgeous drawings of light lass. That Rigel fever thing was a—it was bad news in the 31st century, let me tell you, or the 30th century at this point— and it was perhaps a bit overused by writers when they were being lazy during this era of storytelling. I don't like these short format stories. I feel like the writers were really restricted. Thankfully, this doesn't last very long, as we will start to get longer tales from the Legion of Superheroes coming up very, very soon. But that's it. That is issue 207. Really great work by Mike Grell. Uh, really kind of inferior work by a great writer, Carrie Bates, in this issue. Fun if you're just kind of a lighthearted reader. And, of course, these appeal to kids back in the day more than adults. And so uh, when I was younger, certainly this sort of story wouldn't have bothered me as much as it does now. But, again, great Mike Grell artwork, some really beautiful pieces in, in this issue. As we see in every issue, Mike Grell really trailblazing as far as uh, artistic style and and as far as some of the the flourishes that he adds to the page bringing it to life making the, the pictures the panels making the the characters jump out of the, the page at us uh, Mike Grell was ahead of his time for sure and that's why we all love him this is Jeff Messer from Geek Brain Popcast iHeartRadio thank you once again to Ruth and Darren for all the great things they do and we'll see you sometime in the near future with another breakdown of another great Mike Grell, Superboy, and the Legion of Superheroes story. Back to you, Darren and Ruth. Next up is listener feedback, when we share the emails and other messages we've received since last time. We appreciate each comment and know they add so much to the show. Thanks to everyone who wrote in or got in touch through social media. First, we want to thank Mike and Jeff for their great coverage of issues 206 and 207 of the Legion of Superheroes. Thank you both very much. Before we get into our feedback, we want to mention the details of our new contest. This great idea came from Chris, who is one of the hosts, along with Jerry, of the fun podcast Bat Books for Beginners. It's a terrific show with fast-paced reviews of a variety of story arcs from the Batman universe. If you haven't tried it yet, do yourself a favor and give it a listen. Chris also covers the fun Batman 66 comics on Stella's excellent Batgirl to Oracle podcast. Chris asked if we had ever given any thought to our Dreamcast for The Warlord. And while we've often wished we could get a movie or TV series based on The Warlord, we've never actually given any thought to a dream cast for it. So we decided this is the perfect opportunity to turn this into a fun contest. So give some thought to your dream cast for The Warlord and email your ideas to us at warlordworlds at gmail.com using the subject Warlord Dreamcast. Travis Morgan, Tara, Mashiste, Mariah, Shakira, Demos, and any other characters you have ideas about, send them our way. We'll read those selections in an upcoming episode and see what great ideas everyone comes up with. Everyone who submits a Dreamcast will be entered into a drawing and will give away something signed by Mike Grell. We're not sure what the prize will be, but we know we have a couple of items signed by him that we've set aside for contests. And if we have multiple items, we'll let the winner choose what they want the most. We'll kick off our feedback with an iTunes review by Chris of Bat Books for Beginners. It reads, A great, entertaining, comprehensive look at a fantastic talent. The Sutherlands provide nice recaps and insights to the material created by Mike Grell. Very worthwhile. 
We've enjoyed getting to know Chris through podcasts and emails. We really have a lot of interests in common, including Star Trek and the Wild Wild West and the British espionage series, The Avengers. Chris also let us know the first appearance of Shakira is one of his favorite issues. He said Shakira is a great character, beautifully drawn, and a lover dialogue. Our friends at Comics in the Golden Age wrote, Another great episode. Keep them coming. Spencer Holmes let us know that the recent Green Arrow storyline may just be his favorite. Joe Crawford of the Non-Discerning Reader blog wrote, A new episode of Warlord Worlds is a great way to start the week. Mark Sweeney of Comic Couplets and the podcast I'm the Gun wrote, What an entertaining listen. Darren and Ruth and their guests cover some awesome adventure comics. Mark also let us know that he was lucky to find a bunch of John Sable collections at a trade paperback sale. It was a great selection. Nethead also picked up a brand new John Sable book and shared a photo with us. Great, and thanks for sharing it. Alan Wright of BoldOutlaw.com gave us a shout-out, and we had a nice exchange on social media about the character Maggie from Cat on a Hot Tin Roof being linked to Maggie the Cat found in the John Sable comic. Very interesting. The Incredible Mark on Twitter commented about the John Sable TV show, saying, I desperately miss this series. They don't make them like this anymore. We're still hoping ourselves and keeping our fingers crossed that John Sable will return someday soon. The Legion of Superheroes segments have generated lots of conversation online. It's all thanks to our great guests who have done an outstanding job and have helped boost everyone's nostalgia for the series. Martin Gray of the blog Too Dangerous for a Girl shared a memory, saying, I bought issue 205 of the Legion of Superheroes as a kid, but lost it before I got home. I was devastated. Four years. That was so sad to read, Martin. I know that terrible feeling. Martin also shared a terrific memory with us. He actually once shared a page with the Warlord. He sent a picture of a letters page that includes his letter along with an ad for the Warlord. Fantastic. And regarding our last episode, Martin said, I never heard the good Dr. Ange sound so smooth. Great show all around. Karen of Between the Pages wrote, The Anti-Lad story sounded familiar to me, which is odd because I've never read that story. Then I realized the whole viewing the past changed it so I have to travel to the past to fix it is also the plot of the wonderful Star Trek the Animated Series episode yesteryear. We had a nice exchange with Karen about how much we love that episode as well. Derek Coward, the host of Comic Book Noise, commented about the story The Legionnaire That Nobody Remembers, saying, Funny, I read that issue, but I can't remember. Ha, that was funny, Derek. We want to send a special thank you to Super Hamhawk for doing a great promo about our last episode. We sincerely appreciate it. Lee Markowitz let us know that The Longbow Hunters is a top five favorite comic ever and added that Mike Grell is a master of the art form. We agree completely. We were happy to see that Jimmy Urin, the lead singer for the electropunk band Mindless Self-Indulgence, retweeted one of our posts and proclaimed, I love Grell. And we saw that Jimmy has a role as Ravager in the upcoming Guardians of the Galaxy 2. Fabulous. We were so happy when Jamie Ray sent a photo of himself meeting the great one himself, Mike Grell, at New Orleans Wizard World. He was so excited about getting to meet him, and I'm glad he let us know about it. We discovered an amazing blog by Jeffrey Willis. It is called Hollow World, Stories from Inside the Earth. It includes information about Skataris, Pellucidar, and other Hollow World settings. You can find it at pellucidarscataras.blogspot.com. We'll have a link in our show notes. We've really enjoyed exploring the site. There are terrific blog posts and photos. It even includes photos of Warlord cosplayers in an amazing van with the Warlord and Shakira painted on it. We were surprised and honored that Jeffrey recently did a post about our Warlord Worlds podcast on his site. He called our show highly informative and tremendously detailed, 
and a wonderfully high-quality labor of love. I'm blushing now. Thanks, Jeffrey. We were pleased to record guest spots for two different podcasts recently. First, Wendy Freeman interviewed us for Double Page Spread. We're big fans of her podcast and really had fun talking with her. And we joined Paul Spataro on Is It Jaws to talk about the classic film The Adventures of Robin Hood with Errol Flynn, Olivia de Havilland, and Basil Rathbone. It's a favorite, and it was a treat to get to discuss it with Paul. Both of those shows will be out later, and we'll post them on our social media sites when they are released. We mentioned earlier that we had the opportunity to see Mike Grell at Lexington Comic Con. We had never attended that con and thought it was very well organized, it was a nice location, and had great guests. One of our highlights was meeting half of the Supermates podcast. Chris Franklin was there, along with son Andrew. It is always fun to meet someone in person who you've gotten to know through podcasts. And it was heartwarming to see a father and son spending the day together at such a wonderful event. We hope to meet Cindy and their daughter in the future so we can know all of the Super Franklins. We had a great time talking about our experiences at the con. Chris and Andrew got an excellent print from Neil Adams and a fantastic photo of the two of them with John Wesley's ship of The Flash. Chris also told us an amazing story about when he and Cindy met Frank Gorshin, who played the Riddler on Batman TV series, and of course he did so many other things, and that meeting sounded outstanding. Over the weekend, we had a couple of nice opportunities to chat with Mike Grell, and he shared a very funny story with us that follows up on something we covered last episode. If you remember, our friends at the Who's Who and the Legion podcast from the Fire and Water Podcast Network asked us to ask Mike Grell about the character of Anti-Lad, the Legionnaire no one remembers. On the previous episode, we read Mike's very funny reply about how he literally didn't remember Anti-Lad, and he actually had to Google the character before answering the question. Well, since that episode, Mike Grell got a commission request for Anti-Lad. He said he had never gotten a request for an anti-lad commission before and knew it was too much of a coincidence and had to be related to the coverage on the podcast. I thought that was terrific and have to ask that if the person who got that commission is listening, please share it online and tag us. We would love to see it. I almost wonder if it was one of our friends from the Who's Who podcast. Maybe Shag or Russell or Ange or maybe Kyle Benning from King Size Comics Giant Size Fun. If I remember correctly, it was actually his idea that we asked Mike. We got another great email from Mike Grell, which included a photo of a beautiful wraparound cover he did for the Hero Initiative Wonder Woman 100 project. He said he hopes the project raises a jillion bucks for the Hero Initiative, which is an organization who helped Mike out when he was hospitalized a couple of years ago. If you aren't familiar with the Hero Initiative, it's a nonprofit charity that is dedicated to helping comic book creators in financial need. It's a great organization and provides support in times of crisis for our real-life comic book heroes. The image of Mike Grell's Wonder Woman cover generated lots of activity on social media. Comic Diva shared excitement over the artwork, and Simon Brisbois said, Excellent work Mike Grell did there. Love the composition and the colors. Catches your attention immediately. We mentioned the Mike Grell variant covers earlier, and we want to thank Ange of the Supergirl Comic Box Commentary for sharing a photo of the very first Green Arrow comic with a Mike Grell cover on New Comic Book Day. Mike Grell also shared the original pencils for the variant cover art for Green Arrow 18 and called it an advanced look at my first Green Arrow cover in the 21st century. There's been so much excitement on social media about his variant covers. It's wonderful to see the great reception these new Mike Grell covers are getting. We certainly agree with Victor Lanza, who said, keep the Mike Grell covers coming. Before we wrap up our feedback, we want to thank Jeff Messer for the very kind words about all of our podcasts that he shared on a recent episode of his Geek Brain Podcast. He does an excellent show, and we sincerely appreciate what he had to say. If you haven't tried the Geek Brain Podcast, please do so. 
It is our favorite way to keep up with the latest news about comics, films, TV, and other geek topics. And now we have something special to wrap up our feedback. On the previous episode, we covered the first appearance of Shakira in The Warlord, and we got an amazing email afterwards with some extra details about Shakira's origin from none other than Mike Grell himself. We were thrilled and planned to read that email on this episode, but even better, while we were interviewing Mike about Green Arrow for an upcoming episode, we decided to ask him to tell that story in his own words. So let's wrap up our feedback with some words from Mike Grell himself. On the last episode of our show, we covered the first appearance of Shakira in The Warlord, and you wrote us a really nice email telling us about where you got the idea for that character, and we just know the listeners would love to hear that. So if you could just tell that story for our listeners. Yes. The the night that I was working on the story, I watched the movie The Man Who Would Be King, Sean Connery and Michael Caine, and the girl in there is just exotically beautiful, incredible. And at the end credits... I saw her name, and it turns out that it's Michael Caine's wife, Shakira Caine, which is where the name of the character came from. Now, the, the aspect of the character, of the, the girl who changes into a cat, or the cat who changes into the girl, came from the episode of Star Trek featuring a character called Gary Seven. can't remember the name of it, but you'll remind me. Simon Earth. And the girl was just a presence. He had a, a black cat with a jeweled collar who was always in the background, lounging around someplace, and every now and then, you look over, it would be this beautiful girl. And somebody would ask, you know, who's that? And would say, it, that's my cat. And they'd look, <laughs> it's a cat. So I came up with a, the idea of Shakira as a companion to Morgan, who has all these feline characteristics, but she's also capable of being quite human. And their, their relationship is very much like anyone's relationship with a cat. You would like to think the cat loves you. <laughs> you you're entitled to your fantasies. You know? <laughs> and, and, and as devoted as, as a, a cat can be, they're doing the best they can with what they've got, but they're a cat. Okay? <laughs> so she's, she's just as likely to go off with a handsome young or old scraggly that matter tomcat in an alley which she's done on several occasions as she is to stand by morgan and it asked for the the answer to the question that a lot of people are are asking well there's two the first is when when she becomes a girl she often has a spear where does the spear come from (laughs) it's the answer to that is the same answer to where does the warlord keep his bullets (laughs) If, if you have to know the answer to that You're taking this all entirely too seriously. It's a comic book. That one I actually haven't figured out. But the other burning question that everybody wants to know is, is she a girl who turns into a cat or a cat who turns into a girl? And I know the answer, but I ain't saying. Oh, no. Uh, Yep. You're going to have to wait for the 50th anniversary of the Warlord, which is coming up alarmingly fast. (laughs) 2023 a publishing date 2024 i used to think that was a long distance in the future but it's it's a lot closer than you would think if i'm still around i promise i'll tell the secret but not before that okay i look forward to it (laughs) 
Next, we want to extend our thanks to everyone who supported us on social media since last episode. These are people who liked or shared our Facebook or Tumblr pages or retweeted our tweets. If we miss a name, please let us know and we'll include it next time. And do forgive us if we mispronounce your name. If that happens, let us know and we'd be happy to correct that next time as well. Alan Wright from BoldOutlaw.com Amy Neely, Ange of the Supergirl Comic Box Commentary blog Ashford of Feathers and Foes and Straight Out of Gallifrey BC Fan 101 Ben Losasso Bill Beer of the podcast Too Old Too New Brian Morris Brian Mulvey Bronze Age Babies Chris Franklin of the Supermates podcast and Batman Nightcast Chris Carnes of Bat Books for Beginners Chris Sheehan of the Cosmic Treadmill podcast and the blog Chris's on Infinite Earths Clinton Robison of the Coffee and Comics blog and podcast Comic Diva Cullen Stapleton from the Worst Comics Podcast Ever Daniel Durand David Lowry DC in the 80s, Derek Coward of the Comic Book Noise podcast, Doug Zuija of the Doom Patrol blog, My Greatest Adventure 80, and Ryder at Comicosity, Dr. G, Man of Dirtology of the Pulp to Pixel podcast, The Drunken Dork podcast, Ed and Terry Moore of Till Productions, Eric Mannix of Out of the Fridge and Pages for All Ages, The Incredible Mark, The Irredeemable Shag of the Fire and Water podcast network, also known as Firestorm Fan, Jacob Edward, Jamie Ray, Jason Unmasked. Jeff Messer of the Geek Brain Popcast, Jeffrey Willis of the Hollow World Blog, Joe Crawford of the Blog for the Non-Discerning Reader, John Baker, Justice's First Dawn with Mike Peacock, Karen Williams of Between the Pages, Kyle Benning of King Size Comics Giant Size Fun, Lee Markowitz, Legion of Superheroes, Let's Talk Masters of the Universe, Mark Adams of Mark Smith's Podcast, Mark Sweeney from I'm the Gun Blog and Podcast, Martian Lobotomy, Martin Gray of the blog Too Dangerous for a Girl, Michael Lane of Comics in the Golden Age, Music Meister, Nethead, Pat Samson from the Longbox Crusade, Paul Hicks of the Waiting for Doom podcast, Paul Spataro of Back to the Bins and Is It Jaws, Philip Schweier of the Comic Book Bin, Professor Allen of the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network, Reggie, co-host of the Cosmic Treadmill podcast, Ryan Daly of the Power of Fishnets and Midnight the Podcasting Hour. Simon Brisbois, Spencer Holmes, Stephen Miller, Super Hamhop, Tim Wallace of the Cord Industries Blue Beetle blog, and Beetlemania, Tony Greenall, Van Z of All Star Comics Review podcast, Victor Lanza, Weird Science DC, and Wendy Friedman of the podcast Double Page Spread. Before we go, we want to provide our contact information, so let us know your thoughts through email, Facebook, or Twitter. If you want to contact us directly, please send an email to warlordworlds at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr using the name Warlord Worlds, and you can also visit warlordworlds.com for links to all of our social media pages. And you can listen to the show through iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. You can also find the show on YouTube as part of the Rad Adventures Podcast Network. I'm sure you get it. Ruth and Darren, Rad, R-A-D. We've had fun with that. On the Rad Adventures YouTube channel, you'll find all of the episodes of all of our podcasts, including Warlord Worlds, as well as Trekker Talk about 23rd Century Bounty Hunter Mercy St. Clair by Ron Randall, and Xenozoic Xenophiles about the Cadillacs and Dinosaurs series Xenozoic Tales by Mark Schultz. If you like the show, please consider leaving a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Every review helps the podcast to be more likely to show up in search results. And on YouTube, we hope you'll subscribe to the channel and give us some likes on the videos. Thanks for listening, and we hope you will come back next time for another new episode of Warlord Worlds. 
Warlord Worlds is a proud member of the Comics Podcast Network. For more information, visit comicspodcast.com. We are not affiliated with DC Comics or Mike Grell. The views expressed on the show are solely ours. Music is taken from the album Royalty-Free Instrumental Music for Movies and Websites. We make no money from this podcast and no copyright infringement is intended. 